Hey community, in today's episode, Matt sits down with author Rory Noland to discuss his newest book, Transforming Worship, and how we as worship leaders can implement more transformative worship services. We hope you enjoy the interview and you can purchase the book, Transforming Worship, wherever books are sold. What's up, everybody, and welcome to today's edition of Loop Live. My name is Matt McCoy. I'm the founder of loopcommunity.com. I'm also your host for the Loop Live show today, and today we've got a great great special guest. His name's Rory Noland, and he's an author. He's a worship coach. He's a songwriter. He uh, is the worship pastor's pastor. He was also at one point my boss, which uh, maybe we'll talk about that for a second. But um, anyways, he wrote a book called The Heart of the Artist, which really impacted me as a young worship leader. I remember reading that book and just learning so much, The Heart of the Artist. And um, I loved it so much, I remember taking my worship team through it, and we did it together. I read it a second time with the team, and it was just such a good uh, thing to do together. And he has a new book out, Transforming Worship, and we're going to talk about that today. So if you guys have any questions at all, of course, wherever you're watching, whether on YouTube or Facebook, if you have any questions, you can write them down in the comment box, and we might take some live questions, too, from you. So type in any questions you want, and we might uh, ask Rory those while we're talking with him. But um, also, if you have not yet done so, make sure you hit the subscribe button and the like button, or share. Let's just get the word out about this show. We want to get as many people uh, to hear about this book as possible. So. Without further ado, here is Rory Noland. Rory. Hey, Matt. Good to see you. Good to see you again. You know, it's funny to think that, you know, we used to, we worked together for like, I think it was like eight years or something like that. Yeah, we had offices right next to each other. Offices right next to each other. I had a one-on-one meeting with you every week, and uh, I don't see much, I don't see you as much as I used to, um, so it's good to kind of reconnect and the heart of the artist writer. And, you know, I will say that, you know, working under you for eight years, you really were the worship pastor's pastor. Like you kind of just came, you you know, you, I can't remember what your role or your title was there, but you were the head of the worship department and you never like really got on stage. Like you weren't the one like actually, you weren't getting on stage leading worship, but you were the one behind the scenes, like just coaching and helping the worship pastors and I just thought that was such a cool, unique role because I feel like I've never really seen a church have that. Usually the worship director, the guy, he's like the main worship leader on stage, keeping it all together. But that, that's what was so cool about that church is that they actually like got a guy to come in to just pastor the worship leaders, which was really unique. And I got to witness that firsthand from you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I spent a lot of, you know, many years on the platform and <laughs> it was fine when it's, you know, when it was all over. But uh, my heart really has always been for artists and for worship leaders. And uh, so I I just love the pastor and, and shepherd artists. Uh, I am one. And um, I think we're pretty unique in many ways. But uh, yeah, and working with guys like you, you know, that's that's like um, like the highlight of my life. Yeah, it was it was a fun time, and I I learned a lot under your leadership. And um, so you recently, to the heart of the artist, didn't it celebrate like a twentieth anniversary or something or some big milestone? I thought. Well, yeah, the um, we we came out with a revised version of the book ah. at the beginning of this year uh, because the book's been out now twenty two years, and okay. so yeah, kind of like the twentieth anniversary edition. 
And uh, so it gave me an opportunity to update it and revise it and add some material uh, that I've been teaching, uh, you know, since I first wrote it. Yeah, it's a great book. And so if you guys are watching this and you have not read that book, I would recommend it. Check out the Harley Artist Revised Edition. But so you've got a new book, though, Transforming Worship, which I've read and very much enjoyed. Can you tell us about it? Like, why did you decide to write Transforming Worship? Hmm. Well, my two biggest passions in life are spiritual formation and worship. Uh, my first two books were about spiritual formation and the life of the artist. Then my second two books were about worship. And so this gave me an opportunity, Matt, to put them together. And uh, so uh, while writing this book, I was driven really by two overarching uh, questions. What would it look like to conceive of gathered worship as if spiritual formation mattered? And how would that affect the way we plan and lead worship services? So you might say I was compelled to write this book. Its content has been stirring in me for quite some time. And that's why the, the subtitle is Planning and Leading Sunday uh, Services as if Spiritual Formation Mattered. I love that subtitle, by the way, mm. because <laughs> I do feel like that it's kind of just like a great reminder of like, oh, yeah, this is maybe why we're doing church service, why we're doing because I do think that it could be so easy to kind of just get into like planning services and, you know, doing the cool new hip songs or the new whatever. And, and all that stuff's fine. It's not bad. But we can kind of maybe forget like, oh, uh, there's actually like a purpose here of like <laughs> spiritual formation. Like actually, how do we actually coach and lead our congregation through worship and pastor them in that? So what would you, how would you describe, like what is transforming worship? Yeah. Well, I defined it in the book very simply. I, divine, I define it as a communal experience that combines classic spiritual practices with a formative encounter with God in Christ uh, through the Holy Spirit. So notice, first of all, that it's communal. It's, it's something we do in the company of others. It's also highly uh, experiential and highly participatory. So it draws from traditional Christian disciplines such as prayer, scripture reading, confession, the Lord's Supper, kind of the, you know, the things we do in church. So, but the assumption here is that every major part of the service, not just the sermon, can be spiritually formative. And at the heart of the, really this wonderful experience that we call church is a life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's kind of why I'm really jazzed about it. Yeah, so the term transforming worship, is that has that been around before? Or are you kind of, is that a new term that you're kind of, you created? Well, it's, you know, we've always said, you know, that yeah, worship is transformational. You know, I, I've even like written about that. And I've heard people just kind of throw that phrase around, but it really, I, I, I stopped to think about it. It really in my own life is, okay, how has worship transformed me? <laughs> you know, and I, yeah. I had to be honest with that because it also made me wonder if, if we were doing, you know, if we were doing as much as we could to leverage the transformational power and potential of, yeah. of worship. So, yeah, I, I derived really the, the, the title, I think, from um, what I was looking at, especially, you know, in researching this book, I went back to, you know, to Scripture, uh, because for most of my life, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, I never really, I mean, you were talking about the purpose of worship, you know, I never really 
analyzed or really spent a whole lot of time researching scripture as far as what are we supposed to be doing on Sunday morning? But I think a lot of us are like that. We we assume that our church is doing it right, you know, so yeah, it must be scriptural. And um, at various churches I've worked at, we've had maybe a verse or two to support everything we do, but that didn't take into account the whole of scripture. So I really wanted to get down to it. And it's like, okay, what does scripture say about this thing that we do every Sunday morning? And with the word worship in the Transforming Worship title, are you talking about the musical aspect or you're talking about worship? Like define worship in that title for me. Yeah, yeah, great question. You know, I think, Matt, this is one of the things we really have to mitigate against is this, the idea, the misconception uh, that equates worship solely with music. Yeah. And unfortunately, so many people sitting in the pews, that's that's what they think. You know, yeah. worship is for those music guys, you know. And uh, so I'm not really into music, so I don't, you know, I don't sing well, so maybe I don't have to worship. And, you know, that that's a lot more prevalent than we admit, than we care to admit. And so, yeah, we, what I'm talking about worship is worship as we see it, you know, uh, you know, giving, you know, in scripture is proclaiming who God is and what God has done. That, that's you know, kind of simply, but that's what we see throughout scripture. And especially we, that's what we see play out in the Psalms. Yeah, that is, it is so interesting that the word worship is just so connected to music and, you know, mm-hmm. Hillsong and Bethel. And like, like when we think worship, that's what we think of the musical aspect. Yeah. When I researched it, I was like, wow, when, I, when you look at what Scripture says about worship, you, you realize how little, if anything, it says about music. Wow. So why do you think it's even necessary, like for a worship leader, it's funny because it's even in the worship leader's title, but like for a worship leader listening to this, like, why would you, why is it even necessary that they even consider this? Yeah, well, <laughs> first of all, if you're, if you're congreg- if you sense that you yourself, your congregation, is hungry for a more substantive, um, you know, service or more substantive experience, you know, in worship, I would really uh, advise that you, you know, check out what Scripture has to say about worship, and uh, you know, especially not only the general term, but especially what we do as gathered worshipers, uh, because that's really there's something special that happens, you know, when we get together. And uh, that's really the the more of what we see in the Old Testament, especially, and, and in, the, in the New Testament, actually, is people coming together to worship. Uh, something something really spiritually significant happens when when we gather together. Are there some you know you you work with a lot of churches in coaching them, and I, I mean you've probably seen all sorts of types of churches too, like from non denominational churches to you know, denominational churches and how they all kind of structure their liturgies and their services. And are there some ways that you've seen churches fail to, like how, what are some of the easy traps that I feel like that you see a lot of churches fall into that fail to deliver a spiritually substantive service? Well, um, I think kind of piggybacking on what I you know, was just talking about, I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is that we assume. <laughs> we assume what we know what worship is, um, and we assume that our church is, you know, lines up with uh, the, everything we're doing lines up, you know, and I'm not trying to stir trouble or anything like that, yeah. but, you know, it's really, in many ways, um, 
this book is a call for us to return to the scriptural principles uh, laid out, uh, you know, concerning worship. So, really, transforming worship is not—it's not a new idea. It has biblical and historical precedents, and it's grounded in a sound theology of worship. So I think the principles in this book apply to all churches. I mean, mainland, main, mainline, yeah, yeah. non-denominational, yeah. uh, independent, charismatic. I mean, uh, just across the board. Uh, instead of advancing a new trend-setting philosophy of worship, really, I'm appealing to modern to the modern church to return to a biblical vision of gathered worship as a formative spiritual practice. And uh, so this book is designed to help your church align its worship services to a biblical theology of worship. So it's not just for worship leaders. Uh, It's really, this book is also for pastors and lay leaders. Uh, Everybody who's involved in planning or leading Sunday services really needs to uh, make sure that our church, that our services really do line up with the biblical standard. So, what are some practical ways that a church can begin having a more transformative worship service? And I ask this from a question, from a, from a standpoint of, think of like a Matt McCoy, say, you know, when we were like on, when I was on staff at a church, right? And I'm, my job, because a lot of worship leaders don't have really control, I guess, to say over the entire service. You know, they might only have control over what happens in that 20 minute, 30 minute segment called the musical time, <laughs> the worship time. Mm-hmm. So for somebody who only has control over that segment of a service, what are some ways that a worship leader, because I think we have a lot of those type of people listening right now, what are the ways that that type of person could implement more of a transformative worship service at their church? Yeah. First of all, I, I hear you when, you know, when you, when you cite that, you know, we, we don't have control over, you know, everything that's going on. And that's why I'm really hoping that pastors, uh, you yeah. know, get turned out to this book as well. I think to answer that question, Matt, I, I, uh, I think I'm going to go back to the principles, uh, the main principles that um, I think me and a lot of other people that I've, I've read have been gleaning from scripture and kind of, um, you know, base what we're doing on these, because really we can trace the origin of transforming worship uh, to Mount Sinai, uh, because Mount Sinai is where the Israelites became a worshiping community. Uh, They had been in exile and slavery for 400 some years. And so God rescued them and delivered them, brought them to Sinai. And uh, that's where he revealed himself. And that's that's where he revealed to Moses and to the people how he wants to be worshipped. And many of us just assume that, oh, we know how God wants to be worshipped. It's the way we do it, you know. And that's like, really? Uh, what does this, what does Scripture say? And when you look at, uh, you know, Exodus 1 through 15, and then, you know, read after that, there's several principles that emerge. One is that worship is a God-initiated meeting between God and his people. You know, God dictated to Moses uh, the uh, the terms. You know, he didn't leave it up to Moses. He said, this is when you're going to meet. You're going to meet with me. And so, wow, right away, that changes the whole dynamic of a service is when you realize that this is a God-initiated meeting between God and his people. And so do the people we lead sense that we are entering into a meeting with God when we gather? Or are they coming to church merely to hear the pastor preach? 
uh, are there any prayers or songs or scriptures that we can incorporate to underscore that God is the one calling us together? Because it changes the dynamic of a service from a meeting about God to a meeting with God. So right there, the way we start the service, you know, really establishes whether or not we're all here to meet with God uh, or we're just kind of, you know, entertaining or which, you know, none of us, of course, wants to do. And, uh, you know, a second principle on the heels of that is we see from Sinai that worship is dialogical in nature. Um, in, in other words, <clears throat> when we meet with God, we, it's, we're meeting with him. He speaks to us and, you know, we listen. We speak to him and he listens. And God is this conversationalist. <laughs> you know, when, when Moses gathers the people together, they speak to God and Moses speaks to them for God. And so there's this dialogue going on, and it kind of speaks to the verticality of worship. There is a horizontal aspect, but there's also verticality to it. And uh, so do we understand as we go through the service, okay, now we're talking to God, now we're talking to each other. Um, we need to understand, and I think if you, when you're doing your 20 minutes, you know, it's like, where are the places? Is this song to God? Okay, well, let's sing it as a prayer. Um you know, you and I have worked with, with worship teams and, you know, taking them through exercises where you, you go through the lyrics and you have somebody say, oh, I didn't realize this was a prayer. Bingo. It's like so many of the songs that we do, our prayers, do our people realize that? And are they praying or are they just singing? So I think there's a lot of comments that we can make uh, when when we really truly understand uh, how God desires to be worshipped. And those are just, just a couple you know, principles just off the top of my head. Are there any um, uh, elements that you... like? So let's just say I'm planning a worship service here this weekend, and I've got 20 seconds, or sorry, 20 minutes to lead. <laughs> um, what, what, are there some elements you'd maybe recommend I do? Like one I do, you kind of said there was maybe even you actually like read the song together as a prayer before you sing it. Sure. Yeah, that's one way to do it. Where you just bring people's attention to like, hey, this is a prayer. Like, let's let's, let's just pray this a lot together before we sing it. Are there yeah. any other like creative elements that you've seen worship leaders do that would help this? Well, you know, since we're on the subject of prayer, uh, the second, the, the first half of the book, I kind of lay out the whole theology behind it, and I tackle all, all sorts of thorny issues, like you know, what about seekers and all that, and yeah. uh, yeah, and is there a flow that we are shaped to worship? I tackle all that. Yeah. The second half of the book, I give uh, some concrete examples of some elements, some distinctive elements of uh, transforming worship. And one of them uh, involves prayer, and since mm -hmm. we're on that topic. And what I noticed, uh, Matt, is I, as I was going through, especially the book of Luke and Acts, uh, when they talk about prayer in the early church, um, it's if the word all is very conspicuous. It says all the people bowed in prayer, all the people gathered together to prayer. It's like it's like they're hitting us over the head with this word all. And it really hits you that um, prayer in the New Testament church was a group effort. And it wasn't the kind of thing where you know, you watch the professional pray and, you know, and then you said amen at the end. And, you know, sad to say, I've been in a lot of churches where I never got to pray. Uh, I mean, I know I'm supposed to pray along with, with everybody, yeah. but the worship leader prayed 
and then the pastor prayed and but we never prayed and yeah. you know sometimes you know when i hear the pastor say you know, let us pray sometimes i want to jump up and say yes please let us pray you know and yeah and, uh there's when you look at all the ancient liturgies of the church too the focus i mean they had private prayer but they also they, they also had group prayer together and uh so it's, if there's any way that you could, hmm. you know, put up a prayer for everybody, a well-crafted prayer for everybody to say, or, a, a, you know, pick a, a psalm that, you know, many of the psalms are prayers to pray that together. Um, or even in smaller churches, um, you know, I've seen where they break up into groups and pray. Um, but if there's any way we could include the people, let the people pray. Uh, Jesus said, you know, my, my house is a house of prayer. You know, let's let's make it that. Wow, that's so good, Rory. And it's like, yeah, why are we so afraid of incorporating prayer into our church service times? You yeah. know, I, I grew up in a non-denominational charismatic church my whole life. Like, and it was, and honestly, those services looked a lot like they still do now. Like, it really hasn't changed that much. You know, it's like yeah. 20 songs of worship, announcements, maybe another song, sermon, closing song, gone. Yeah. Um, and there was a time when my wife and I lived down in the city of Chicago and right across from our apartment building, there was a Catholic church. And for about a year, I would get up at like six in the morning and walk over and go to the mass that they would have there. I'm not Catholic at all, but I fell in love with just the sacredness, the quietness. There was time literally where you kneel and you pray. And it's like, I have grown, I've been in church my whole life and I don't think I've ever kneeled <laughs> and prayed in a church service. And, you know, they make time for that in the Catholic liturgy. And I just loved it. And I, you know, I, I can't help but wonder, but even now, like people are so barraged with social media and like so much happening in our lives, like constant noise, that people need that more than ever. Like if we could incorporate that in our churches on Sunday morning, people need that. I think people would crave it. And for some reason, we're afraid of planning that into our church service, but I think people would love us for it because <laughs> they don't get that anywhere. Yeah. yeah, I think you're absolutely right. People are hungry for the sacred and uh, for for reverence in worship. And, uh, you know, if you can have both um, in a service, which you really should, uh, if you can accomplish both, you're really giving your people a full, fully orbed experience, I think, in that way. But, yeah, silence is a way to revere God. And, um, you know, and even, you know, silence can be a, a little tricky sometimes, especially if you've never do it. Uh, but, boy, where else can people go, especially these days, for just some some time out and uh, where they are yeah. really forced to think? Uh, but I really think you're onto something. The other thing I think you're bringing up here too, Matt, is um, uh, because I have other friends that have told me about their experience in the Catholic Church, or you know, or uh, there's there's a growing movement I think we're seeing, uh, especially among worship leaders these days, to incorporate liturgy or elements of liturgy, and um, you know that's that's kind of a thing right now, and uh, you know one of the things that's attractive I think for that is that. It just feels like you're singing or praying something that is tried and true because so often uh, these ancient prayers are, they're just substantive and yeah. uh, they're not rambling, they're to the point and they're like, wow, uh, 
um, they're very powerful. And uh, so I think there's something in that. Um, yeah, that, even the creed, like just yeah, reciting, yeah. here's what we believe. Like, it's very yeah. clear. It's to the point. Exactly. And there, and it's been around for a long, long time. And there is well, something about that. There's a stability to it and a sacredness. Yeah. yeah, well, there's fight. Uh-oh. Hello. You guys, I think we lost Rory, which is such a bummer because we were really at a key part. Let's see um, if he's going to come back here um, while we okay. wait. Oh, there he is. Rory. Yeah. Yeah, I got cut off. That was weird. That was very strange. I'm not sure what happened. But I can't remember what you were saying, but we were talking about how even like the we're Apostles' Creed. The yeah. yeah, the creeds. Yeah. Yeah, they, they were fighting words because, the, you know, the creeds were developed to... Uh, combat all the heresy that the church was facing in those days. And so, yeah, for some of those ideas, you know, some of the early Christians died, uh, you know, for some of the, the ideas, you know, that about the Trinity and about Jesus yeah. being God. So, um, yeah, them are fighting words uh, in the creeds. Yeah, they're substantive. I couldn't even tell you the last time that I heard the creed spoken in a non-denominational, like, charismatic church. I know. That's pretty, it's pretty wild. So in your book, you raise the question of should Sunday mornings be prioritized for believers or non-believers? And I'd be curious what you think about this. And it's interesting because I know that you were at a church for a long time that was definitely very focused for the non-believers for a long time. Yeah. And then you went to a church that was actually very focused, I think, for believers. Yeah. Um, yes. And you and I actually were both on staff at both of those churches at very different time periods. Uh, I know. So we both have seen both sides. I'd be curious, like, what's your take now? Like, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, when I talk about a more spiritually formative service, one of the first questions I usually get is, what about seekers? And uh, so <laughs> I, th I think we need to, you know, an you know, address that. Now, you, and, you were just alluded to really the two main approaches to planning worship over the last 40 years, the seeker attractional model and the participatory worship model. And uh, just a quick uh, summary of those in, in case people are not familiar. Uh, the seeker attractional model is, uh, you know, the idea here where you bring a friend or relative to a service or to an event and uh, they hear a, a clear presentation of the gospel, maybe even an altar call. And it's also called arena evangelism or event evangelism. And, uh, you know, very, uh, you, you know, yeah, you and I were on staff at the church that, that pioneered, uh, you know, Willow, uh, that pioneered kind of the seeker attractional uh, whole paradigm. Yeah, at Willow, we were seeker driven. I mean, we were not just seeker sensitive, we were seeker driven. And um, so, you know, there's, there's that approach. And then there, the participatory worship model kind of came along as kind of a reaction maybe against some of the slickness of the seeker attractional model. And uh, But that one, you know, it's interesting that both of these approaches have divergent views on evangelism, you know. And so the participatory worship model is all about worship and edifying believers. And uh, the idea here is that evangelism happens at work and in the community. You know, you go out into the community and, and you... Um, uh, and you witness and develop relationships. Okay. So um, now there's drawbacks to each one. 
the seeker tractional model, as we found out, uh, there was this reveal project that came out that uh, kind of revealed that Willow was really big on evangelism, but not very good at edifying. And, you know, for those of us that work there, it just kind of confirmed what we knew all along was that Willow was a great place to find the Lord, not a great place to grow in the Lord. Um, so, you know, there does have its critics. Uh, participatory worship model, you know, one of the drawbacks there is that the emphasis is so high on edifying the believer that it almost becomes like uh, we almost have a built-in consumerist approach to worship. You know, everything is geared to the heartfelt needs of the people. And uh, so we kind of created our own little monster there in some ways. People come, you know, what's, what's in it for me? And little, you know, we expect evangelism, evangelism to be happening, you know, on the, on, on the job and in the marketplace and in, and in the community, but it's not. In reality, it's not. You know, so that plan has its drawbacks, too. And uh, I think what we see, so I, I was really like, okay, what do I do with this? And um, there's this uh, passage, there's this chapter in 1 Corinthians 14 that is that is mind-blowing because I think it gives us a glimpse into the New Testament church. They had it together when it came to, they, they were able to both edify believers and evangelize unbelievers. And when you look at 1 Corinthians 14, like six or seven times, Paul talks about the purpose of the service is to edify. You know, he's, he huh. keeps... He yeah. hits it home. I edify, yeah. edify, edify. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that was the whole idea. The purpose of the service is it's for believers. You know, it's edify believers. And then towards the end of the same chapter, after hammering at edification, Paul throws this on you. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to count by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he was fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. It's like, wait a minute. You know, what Paul is describing here is this unbeliever has this amazing experience at a believer service. So first of all, Paul assumes that unbelievers are going to be present. And yeah. that's, that's the first thing we need to realize is unbelievers are going to be present. And um, in hmm. fact, we, you know, that's 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 part of our uh, our, our commission, you know, is, is to, you know, um, you know, make disciples and to make disciples, you have to get them to accept Christ. Um, but what's what's interesting here is that, you know, Paul was able to to address this and, um, you know, in a way that was made it obvious that seekers are going to be in the room. And so the, the, the priority here is that believers are first and that uh, unbelievers are second. That's mm -hmm. the priority that you get from chapter 14 here. And I think that's where we went wrong, probably with the seeker tractional model, if I could be you know, critical, is that we flipped it. It's, you know, seekers are first and, uh, <laughs> and then uh, believers were a distant second. And with a participatory worship model, Believers are first, and then seekers aren't even on the table. And uh, so what Paul is telling us is that there's a way to prioritize, you know, to evangelize unbelievers in a believer service, first of all, by prioritizing um, uh, uh, believers, edification, 
And then he shows us how to evangelize unbelievers. First of all, um, we need to make sure that they feel welcome. Mm -hmm. Throughout uh, this chapter, everything he's doing is to make believers feel welcome. And then uh, we need to worship like we mean it. Um, you know, one of the you know passionate and dynamic worship is, I think, one of the most effective forms of Christian witness. And then we help, need to help seekers understand. And this is where I think Willa was really good at. We were, our leaders and our teachers are really good at, you know, at, you know, telling, saying, well, now we're going to pray. And if you're not comfortable praying, you know, it's okay. This is how we talk to God. But we need to make sure that all we say and do during worship is comprehensible to outsiders. And Paul was all over this. Uh, the people were speaking in tongues uh, without an interpreter. And Paul's main concern was, you know, outsiders are not going to know what's going on here. So it, as you go through the service, and this is one of the, one of the uh, I think, the gifts of my Willow experience is that it has made me aware of seekers in the room. And I think that's yeah. always a good thing. And then the, the last thing I think uh, we learned from uh, the Corinthian church is to present conversion from a biblical perspective. Uh, you know, many people come to Christ assuming that discipleship is optional. And if all the people have to do to ask Jesus, you know, is ask Jesus into their hearts and are saved, then why should they bother with spiritual formation? And so we need to convey that spiritual formation is intrinsic to what it means to be saved. It's not an optional add-on. I mean, it's okay for people to come to Jesus just as I am, as long as they don't leave church thinking that it's okay to stay that way. Wow. Tons of good thoughts there. I do think that people are attracted to just... Uh, people who are just real and if you're really you know what I mean like I think that we shouldn't be pretend to be some something we're not instead like like almost the way to the seeker sensitive thing to do now would be just be real <laughs> instead of throwing out all the sacred and then just doing like you know pop songs and in, in your worship yeah you know keep doing the the sacred yeah. stuff but just also be real like also just be relatable too like you know, yeah. talk to people like they're normal. And <laughs> I think yeah. that's the way to be seeker now. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So mm -hmm. it means that we don't dumb down our message and we don't like not do something just yeah. because there's, there's, oh, we're not going to pray because they're seekers. And no, that's, we do the things that Christians do. That's yeah. being authentic. You know, we pray, we sing, you know, we, we, we talk to God. Uh, you know, we, you know, we, we weep, uh, you know, over, yeah. over the misfortune of, of others. So, yeah, that we got to stay true to who, who we are as God's people. And do it in a way that's comprehensible to non-believers. Love it. Yep. I think yes. that's a really that's really good, Rory. Wow, thanks thank you for that. I feel like that really actually distilled it very clearly. Um, how can worship leaders and senior pastors handle pushback from congregation if they try to implement some of these things cuz I could see you know, a church maybe trying to shift gears and move more towards this kind of direction, and you might get pushback from people. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if you would get pushback because I think people actually might really crave it and realize that it's filling a need that they they have. But if you did get pushback, what, what, what are some things that a worship leader or senior pastor could do to resolve yeah. that? Well, yeah, I share in the book that, you know, as a worship consultant, you know, I get brought in and, you know, people want to take their worship the next step. And uh, they're willing to invest thousands of dollars into like a new sound system. But, 
you know, when you talk about maybe tweaking the service, they're like, oh, no, you know, I, I, I don't want to mess with the service. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. and, you know, the good news is, first of all, like I said, I'm not advocating a, a brand new worship style or, you know, new brand of praise music. And really the elements and this is why I think the second half of the book is pretty important. The elements of a transforming worship service are things we're already doing. Things like prayer, uh, things like God's word, uh, you know, uh, confession, although I know not all churches do do confession, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, but it's doing these things um, with a greater intentionality around uh, spiritual formation. And uh, so I would include music under that, uh, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I, I actually, when I'm thinking about it, it kind of falls into the, gata- the category of prayer. And uh, that we also, that's, you know, we're talking to God or we're proclaiming who God is. But, um, yeah, that we, we continue to, to proclaim who God is and that we also continue uh, to do these things with greater intentionality uh, around spiritual formation. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, you know, so was... in, in ways it, it, doesn't make, it doesn't mean that we overhaul the service, but we, we actually approach it with a more, more serious intentionality. Yeah. You know, one thought I had to just kind of going back a little bit for a second about the seeker model is, um, I think it would be odd coming in as like a non-believer into a Christian space where the Christians are kind of like pretending <laughs> not to be in a way, you know, like, so if they just do, everything that looks like the world. Like, aren't we supposed to actually look differently than the world? And if we're like kind of pretending it, I would think as a non-believer, I'd be like, well, wait a minute, don't you like believe what you say you believe? Like you're, you're, you're kind of hiding it. Like you're not actually like really even practicing it. And I think what would be more attractive to me as a non-believer would be like to see people really passionately engaged in what they believe and what they're saying they believe. Yeah. Then yeah. someone trying to hide it and being like, no, we just want to make this like pretty for you. I bet like, no, 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 no. Show me the real. Show me the the realness. Show me like what you really believe, and and yeah. if you really believe it, you'll <laughs> act that way. Yeah, I had a friend who took his son to a liturgical service uh, just to kind of expose himself to it. And he did, he thought his son wouldn't like it because you know the music was uh, was traditional, and of course the mm-hmm. service was more traditional. And the, the son's reaction was very interesting because he didn't even mention the music. Uh, you know, he just he just said, you know, I'm not sure the people meant what they were saying. You know, I, I like the liturgy, but I'm not sure they meant it. And he picked up on exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. The lack of authenticity. And you think about it, if he had gone in there and in a traditional service, he had never been exposed to it. And, you know, they were doing liturgy, you know, maybe even hymns, but they sang their guts out, you know, he probably would have just been drawn in. Yeah. But he picked up on that exactly what you're talking about, the lack of authenticity. Yeah, just being real, authenticity. That's the seeker model for 2021, I think. Yeah. I think yeah, I hear you. That's the way to attract seekers, I think. Just be real. So. Rory, a lot of really, really good thoughts here. And I know that this is, we just scratched the surface of what's inside this book. Where can people, I'm sure people can get it everywhere books are sold, right? Yeah, yeah, they can find it any place. It's on, on Amazon or wherever they, they buy their books. Uh, 
I have a link on my website at heartoftheartist.org uh, okay. if you're if you need something like that. But yeah, the title is Transforming Worship. It looks like this. Let's see if I can get yeah. it on here. Uh, Planning and leading worship ser- Sunday services as if spiritual formation mattered. Yeah, okay. it's uh, for worship leaders and for pastors. That's awesome. And then, how can people follow you or find you if they wanted to? Like, are you uh, do you blog at all? Or are you on Instagram, Twitter? I don't no, know. I, I don't blog as, as much as I used to because I'm, I'm writing books. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm on Facebook. Um, you know, just just my name. Okay. And, uh, um, and yeah, you still I do coaching, like one-on-one coaching with worship leaders. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All that information is on my website, hardtheartist.org, and uh, you, you can find me there as well. Okay. Well, Rory, thanks so much for taking the time to sh- share your heart and uh, for pouring so many years, too, of just experience into this book. Uh, it's going to help a lot of churches. Well, thanks, man. It's always great to be with you. Let's do it again. And I do think the key, I would do want to say, I do think the key here is that you, an ideal world would get the worship pastor and the senior pastor to read this book together. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yep, because exactly. then you could really create a full service that is all around this transforming worship idea. So... Yep. I love that. I would encourage yep. every worship leader who's watching this, maybe read it and maybe even encourage uh, taking your senior pastor. Or you guys do it together or something like that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Buy one for your pastor. Yeah. All right, Roy. Good to see you, man. Thank you. Yep. Good to see you. God bless, man. Take care. Yeah. God bless. Bye. All right. So if you liked that interview, write down in the comments, what's the one thing, what's like, what's a main thing that you learned? What's one thing you're going to take away? And we're going to actually choose one person who writes a comment we're going to send you a copy of Transforming Worship. All right? So down below, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, write down in the comments now, what's one thing that you really uh, took away from this interview? We're going to choose one person and send you a copy. Uh, and otherwise, make sure you go to Amazon, purchase this book, read it. I think that it's going to give you a lot of uh, new ideas and just challenge your thinking in some ways, in, in, a, in a very healthy way. I think uh, any of us who've been doing this for a long time, leading worship for a long time, I think it's healthy to kind of have your uh, your the ways you're doing things and your thinking challenged. And I think this book will kind of exercise your mind in that. So, and also help you just to create a service that's transforming, which is I know really what we all really want deep down. I think we all know that we want people who are coming into our church into our church building on a service to really experience God in a very real way. And uh, that's our desire. So. Uh, Check out this book. I think it might help you, give you some ideas on that. So anyways, thank you guys for joining us for Loop Live. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the share button if you think there's another worshiper that would enjoy this conversation. And we'll see you soon. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Couldn't do what we do without you. Let us know in the comments what you thought. Also, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube. Stay tuned. we got a bunch more stuff coming. Appreciate you guys. See ya.